Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. We are those people. I'm Mike Bowden-Distel. I'm joined by Joanna No Turkey Marsh. I give you call you No Turkey because you worked straight on through Thanksgiving, apparently, uh, published an article, um, this big CSX derailment on, was it Wednesday, just in time for just in time for Thanksgiving. So how disappointed were you when uh, you saw that CSX had a derailment and you're going to have to publish something on your holiday? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I just kind of expect it kind of par for the course. <laughs> it's like, yeah, so um, it was fine. I mean, well, for me, selfishly, it was fine, you know, but uh, although I'm sure CSX wasn't very happy about it, um, and uh, nor probably other people <laughs> involved in this situation. I'm sure everyone, of course, obviously would not not wanted the derailment happen to begin with. So there you go. But yeah, well, they run the trains 24 seven, 365. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, the railroads don't take a holiday. So I guess that's uh, true of the railroad journalists as well. And it is kind of just striking. I mean, you talked about this this morning on Freight Waves Now. Just how, just how str- what strikes me is this, just how similar this was to at least what initial thoughts are based on the, the Norfolk Southern derailment at East Palestine, Ohio, where wheel bearing heated up the most recent detector, which has it at 170 degrees. It was not 170 degrees, so I didn't catch that. And like my whole life, I've never worried about wheel bearings on rail cars um, until this year. And uh, it just seems to me that like there's got to be some kind of regulation that comes out of this just because, um, you know, these these incidents have been high profile. I mean, the East Palestine one in in particular that really made the rounds on on social media. Um, And I know you're following a lot of the safety legislation you know, that may or may not come out by the end of the year, may come out next year. Um, what are you hearing on uh, railroad safety legislation? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. So I, I should be having a story coming out this week on uh, on the prospects of, of rail safety legislation. Um, what the prospects are, I should say, um, on, on rail safety legislation coming out um, in 2023, of which I think there well, probably by the time the the story is posted, um, will probably be about two and a half weeks, really, because you have this week and then the following two weeks um, in in December, and then I think uh, I, I think and, and then I think they um, are um, on recess uh, like the week before Christmas, and so so there's not enough time. Um, I, it, it's interesting because you know some of the um, some people on the Hill um, had mentioned sort of, you know, people who actually worked on the Hill uh, were, were reluctant to um, say anything one way or the other um, beyond, um, you know, that it's in the hands of um, Senate Majority Leader um, Chuck Schumer of New York uh, to to uh, put the, the vote on the floor um, or put the, put, put the bill on the full floor for a vote. Um, uh, people who observe what's going on in the Hill, um, as, in essence, as you would imagine, uh, say it's an uphill battle and that's unlikely that, uh, that a rail safety bill, um, will have passage, um, this, uh, <laughs> the next like two and a half weeks, three weeks. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so we're kind of looking at 2024 essentially. And then, um, a little preview. Uh, I'll also be writing another story, um, which will be for later in December about, you know, sort of the prospects for 2024 and, and beyond um, for, for rail safety legislation. But that's where we're at right now, mm-hmm. um, which is, 
kind of, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to get much accomplished in two weeks um, in Washington, D.C. So it does seem like it's going to be a 2024 event, but I'd be surprised if there isn't something. I mean, I don't think they want to lap, you know, the, the annual, um, you know, the, 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 annual, the anniversary of the East Palestine, Ohio derailment, you know, not having done something. So my, my guess is by then, the FRA will have something um, in, in the works. So um, we'll look forward to your article uh, there. Um, you also had an article on 22nd uh, about the uh, Service Transportation Board extending the additional feedback, um, you know, the, the timeline to submit feedback on the pr proposed reciprocal switching rule. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We've had a number of shippers or shipper interest groups on this show. And, you know, we've asked them, what would you like to see come out of Washington, D.C.? And the thing they say most often is this, you know, re reciprocal switching rule. Now, this proposed rule, the shippers would say does not go far enough because the service has to be poor for 12 weeks. Well, what if it's not, what if it's poor for, for less than 12 weeks and you can't do anything? Um, and then it only addresses instances of service failure, not just economic issues where a lot of times a rail, rail shippers feel that they're being overcharged simply by the fact that they're a captive shipper to one railroad. So it doesn't address those issues. The shippers say it doesn't go far enough. Rails say, well, it goes too far. Not clear what the service requirements are. They have to invest in all this collection of additional you know, data. Um, you know, I, th I think they probably have the data. They just don't want to share it. And then you know, concerns about the efficiency of the network, which could lead to other disruptions, which you know, if there was rampant orders of reciprocal switching, I, I, I would sort of agree with that. But my sort of perception is just, Kind of having the threat of a reciprocal switch would be enough to change the, the maybe the service levels on some of these um, in some of these corridors. At least um, you know not have an extended uh, service disruption. I mean, there's always ways to companies will game the system if you tell them that they're going to be ordered um, to, to have a reciprocal switch if it's 12 weeks of poor service. You know, it might mean the service is poor for 11 weeks. The interesting thing I thought um, from your articles. Is that unions? Uh, the, the the unions would said that they would rather the service transportation board focus on other things, focus on the common carrier obligation, and not focus so much on on reciprocal switching. And then they said it could impinge upon workers' rights if they're um, away from home more than they otherwise would be. So that was was incremental, um, you know, to to me. Uh, did that surprise you? And have you heard any other surprising comments on reciprocal switching? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think that kind of surprised me a little bit as well, because I think even though, um, well, I guess, you know, you, you think about the the service meltdowns in 2022 and, and in a way like that the shippers and the unions kind of came together as like as as one force <laughs> um, and sort of, uh, you know, going before the service transportation board and, and, and asking them to um uh, asking them to, you know, put some pressure on the railroads. So, you know, that, that argument about, you know, how it might affect, um, the, 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 um, how it might affect, um, the, the workers' rights is, was, was interesting. Um, and something, well, one, one, I just hadn't really thought of, I hadn't really heard, um, about that point, but also, um, you know, it kind of, it, it, it's, it's just, it's just an interesting perspective in general, just because, I mean, I think you, and, and for me at least, you, you kind of hear between, you know, the, 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 the cases, the case laid out for and against, um, you know, with the, the shippers and the railroads, but you don't really hear about the other speakers, stakeholders involved. Um, 
And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think um, there, which I don't want to say it's a silent majority necessarily, but, you know, uh, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, the, the other voices that, um, uh, the, the other parties that, that might have um, uh, a stance on, on things, um, but might not have said so publicly. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it, it is interesting too, but the, the, the question about the common carrier obligation and of course that, that related issue of competition, I, I think um, mm -hmm. I, I've heard that there's, there's a possibility that that question of competition and then perhaps as well, the common carrier obligation um, might be addressed in a separate um, mm -hmm. rulemaking or some sort of separate proceed, uh, proceeding. But of course, the big question mark now is, um, you know, uh, SDB chairman, um, Marty Overman, um, who has been kind of uh, pushing for these things, um, is, uh, you know, isn't planning to be on the board anymore. And so that kind of raises the question about like, how does this affect the momentum of, um, of not only reciprocal switching, but of course, you know, defining the common, common better defining common carrier obligation and, and, and real competition. So um, it's, it's, it, everyone's just kind of wondering what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one thing um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet is, is Marty Oberman's, um, you know, not seeking another term uh, as SCP chairman. And I mean, we've both been following the real industry for a long time. And, you know, there just hasn't been an STB board member uh, who has been as aggressive uh, as as Marty Oberman has been. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, maybe he's been been harder on the railroads, maybe tough but fair. And there's a picture of, of, of Marty Oberman, um, you know, does not capture his bow tie. And the way I've described him in the past is he's a pit bull in, in, a, in a bow tie. Uh, but, you know, he's, you know, taking up some of these issues like reciprocal switching, like, uh, you know, wants to have a, a better definition of the common carrier obligation. You know, he was also, I think, the, um, the, the person who pushed most hard for the railroads providing more, you know, service data. And it looks like they're going to have to continue to provide that service data. You know, also, I, th I think, was a big part of ordering Union Pacific to have that that service order um, to foster farms and, and, and a lot of these things that, you know, the, the, the previous uh, iterations of the Surface Transportation Board, I mean, maybe it was just because the, the railroads were, were not as far along in terms of their, um, in, in terms of their efficiency improvements and, and their margins and all those things, but they just, they just were not as aggressive on the railroads. And it seemed like Marty Oberman, the way I would describe him is he's tough but fair and took the job very seriously. And, uh, you know, the, the people who thought that the Surface Transportation Board was a paper tiger that really didn't do anything. I, I don't think that applied to the, the Surface Transportation Board, um, you know, under his uh, his chairmanship. And so my sort of question ultimately is, does does his leaving change the the board so significantly that it's just it's just not the same agency without him? I mean, they'll be he'll be replaced, you know, presumably by you know another Democrat, someone that Joe Biden would appoint, but. Is he someone who can truly be replaced? Because I just don't think that, you know, there's a lot of people who are sort of that tough, who would take the job that, that seriously, that would, um, you know, really have such a deep understanding of the issues as him. You know, the, the, the class one railroads are not going to be sad to see him go. But I think, you know, maybe some of the, the, the shippers are, some of the union leaders are. But, but what are your thoughts on um, 
his departure? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is hard to say because on one hand, you're right that, you know, he he did um, uh, encourage a lot of that momentum. And, and I think it was a surprise to probably everyone <laughs> that he wasn't, you know, one, you know, that he wasn't uh, seeking reappointment as chair, but two, that he wouldn't even be on the board. Um, so there is that, that big sort of, you know, that that big gaping hole, it feels like, and then within that big gaping hole is a big question mark. Um, I, I wonder though, at the same time, too, how much, in a, in a way, how, how much of an issue will it be as well? Because for the most part, um, even though um, Marty Oberman has led the charge on, on these issues, um, most of the time it's, it's actually, uh, the decisions have had the backing um, of the other four members of, of the two Republican appointees and the two Democrat appointees. And so um, there have been a few instances where um, where the vote wasn't unanimous. Um, and those were kind of along party lines in a sense. I mean, um, you know, you have um, um, Robert Primus, who uh, is uh, probably the, the closest to, um, to to where unions and maybe some shippers think um, SDB should be taking um, uh, reforms um, because he he's you know argued um, his dissents in, in in some of the um, uh, recent decisions you know have been you know calling for um, uh, ways to encourage rail competition and um, and uh, you know, and, and potentially you know, uh, um, um, better define the common carrier obligation. Um, but then you've also had um, the Republican in, in, in some decisions, uh, notably um, the one between uh, the the Navajo um, coal exporter and DNSF. Um, you know, there's a question like uh, so, so in that situation, um, the the coal company um, wanted to. Uh, wanted more BNSF trains to export coal, and BNSF said we didn't have those trains available, and so it was kind of going back and forth. And um, and then there was that question about the common carrier obligation um, in that proceeding as well. And uh, and the two Republican members, um, uh, Patrick Fuchs and uh, Michelle Schultz, um, had uh, you know ha had uh, voted against Oberman in that. Um, proceeding, uh, you know, in terms of of, of of compelling BNSF to um, encourage, uh, or I'm sorry, compelling BNSF to 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 give more, you know, supply more trains to to the coal coal exporter, um, you know, kind of arguing again that that question, you know, that 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 proceeding shouldn't um, be used. To, shouldn't be the, the the lightning rod for for defining the, the common carrier obligation and so like on one hand you do have those differences of opinion but on the other hand um there has been you know some unanimous consent so i think um you know to to, to their credit it, it, it seems like each of the board members um sincerely want you know s some sort of you know d d what 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 those rail shippers address, and of course, it might, you know, they, they might differ on, on where those remedies might lie. But, um, mm -hmm. but 
but I, I, I think, uh, I, I think they're, I, I, I don't want to say, I don't think anyone's going to be slacking necessarily on, um, mm -hmm. on, on the, you know, on, on, on STB related rail issues in 2024. It's a very long. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's true. I think it's also maybe somewhere no, the next person's not going to be as, um, use as a language that's a, as aggressive, like a good example of that is, is just, you know, go, go read John Kingston's article, um, from railway age or not railway age from rail trends, uh, where we wrote up that, um, that, that discussion that that Oberman had, and you know, basically criticized Jim Venas, you know, new CEO of Union Pacific's first several moves, you know, things like the furloughs and the layoffs, and, and, and all of those things. So it was really quite the debate in there, um, you know, with what Union Pacific has been doing. Their their Union Pacific's president said they're disputed that there was any delay of of, of maintenance and that they're spending you know plenty on on capital investment. Um, and there's certain places that's hard to staff, but um, you know, uh, Marty Oberman said, you know, okay, there's some positive developments there, as I think John Kingston highlighted, you know, elsewhere. And he wrote another article also about um, green shoots in the industry, where he talked about how the rail service has improved. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, really, uh, Oberman went went after, um, you know, Pacific CEO pretty, pretty hard. It's, it's, it's a little hard for me to imagine some of the other members of the STB doing that quite as as aggressively whether that ultimately translates into different policy you know making i mean maybe it is just a question of um you know how one person presents themselves in some of these public forums i mean all we can do is is listen to these these public forums oberman sometimes kind of um you know monopolizes the, the discussion a little bit in terms of the questions that are being asked he seems like to ask the most aggressive questions um to, to the participants that are that are asked to testify uh, but but we'll see you know ultimately if if um, this changes much uh, for the railroad industry. Um, with the last few minutes here, want to go through uh, you know a couple of things from uh, Sonar, uh, which is the FreightWaves data product. You have a Sonar uh, chart on intermodal volume, uh, which you know I think this this ties in uh, well with uh, John Kingston's article the other day on green shoots in the industry and service getting a little bit better. And so you see the white line is domestic intermodal volume, it's, it's all domestic intermodal volume, but the, the white line is 2023 domestic intermodal volume. Um, and you see how it's a, maybe a little bit below 2020, which was a really unusual um, you know, year in terms of tight uh, transportation capacity and lots of transportation demand. Uh, so just slightly below 2020 levels and actually pretty nicely above last year's levels. I have fourth quarter, a quarter to date, domestic containerized intermodal volume up 4.2% year over year. So um, it was a strong October and into November and would attribute that to a little bit of a pickup in uh, you know, freight demand that was ahead of what we saw in some of the other modes. Um, you know, the trucking industry had a, a challenging October and, and November. And then uh, also the improvements in, in rail service. Heard a lot of good things on rail service uh, lately. You know, A lot of the shippers that we talked to say that they really haven't had the issues with congestion at the terminals, haven't had a lot of delay days, haven't had any issues uh, sourcing containers. And uh, we've heard particularly good things about CSX, but really across the board, uh, rail services has, has improved and the, the data that Service Transportation Board has been collecting bears that out. Now they've collected all this new data on intermodal delay days and those have really been, have really been pretty minimal. Um, you know, another thing that goes into that, into that chart is then, 
It's been aggressive uh, pricing by the intermodal carriers. So the intermodal uh, contract rates have come down in response to loose, the loose truckload market. And you know our data in Sonar shows that in the third quarter, intermodal contract rates, excluding fuel, down about 17% year over year. Uh, versus the, the third quarter of last year. And it's a little bit worse than what, you know, J.B. Hunt reported. J.B. Hunt reported about 14%. Um, so, um, you know, we saw it down a little bit more. There were some of the, the shippers that we've talked to just put uh, some of their, their intermodal uh, contracts out for bid, which tends to happen either late in the year, sort of let's call it fourth quarter and first quarter. And some of those shippers came back, um, said, said that the bids came back with rates down 30% on average. And that the asset-based carriers were down more than 30%. So presumably those asset-based carriers, because they have lots of containers, they want to keep those containers utilized. And that's why they've been more aggressive on the pricing. So um, so all those things were pretty, um, you know, pretty significant uh, you know, for, 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 for that. And also hearing that shippers are using intermodal maybe a little bit more. I mean, part of that's because the, the, the service has improved. So, so no longer, um, you know, do we have what we had during the pandemic, which is that uh, during the pandemic heard that there were some shippers that went into the, the terminals and pulled their containers out, you know, get them, you know, basically de-ramped them to move them on the highway because the service was so poor. Haven't heard any of that lately. In fact, I've heard, I've heard the opposite that's that some shippers have, you know, when there's enough in inventory, have moved to to intermodal on some things that had been moving truckload, uh, so it's been a little bit of a recovery, I think, in, in 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 market share. And then also heard that some shippers are being approached more um, by the domestic intermodal companies to use more intermodal, including some retailers and some shippers that um, really traditionally had not used intermodal that had been sort of strictly truckload. So these are these are shippers that I would describe as ones that are moving. You know, apparel and other items that are really sort of strictly made overseas and and primarily come in through the port of, of LA Long Beach. Those shippers being approached by multimodal carriers and say, "Hey, let's let's try to move some of this, you know, some of this on the highway." And uh, you know, also think that another thing that's supporting intermodal volume has been a little bit of a shift back towards the West Coast ports rather than the East Coast ports, uh, you know, the, the issues with the Panama Canal, you know, the water issue, water level issues, the Panama Canal has, has, has been driving some of that. Um, in the fourth quarter number, where I said a minute ago, that domestic intermodal volume, I have up 4.2% on the international intermodal side. I have, actually have it up 7.3%. So those are loaded international intermodal containers in the fourth quarter. So the 40, primarily 40 foot uh, containers, those up seven seven point three percent, and then we have this other data series in in Sonar, the IOTI, which is shipments um, shipment volume at the point of origin. So primarily China have those up four point two percent in the fourth quarter. So it, it is the intermodal volume are, are being supported a little bit by just more volume coming in uh, through the West Coast. A, a, a question that we get a lot is how those rates compare to truckload, and have a Sonar chart. Uh, queued up on the intermodal uh, contract savings index. And so what we're looking at here is um, two different indexes. The one in white is looking at uh, intermodal transactions that are processed in the last two weeks and the difference including fuel surcharges to the truckload carriers. And uh, the, the purple line is the same thing. It's just uh, looking, you know, the one the, the transaction have been processed within 56 days. And 
you know, shows that the, the, the transaction's kind of processed in more or less real time. Uh, looks like it's uh, 9.3% reduction, the ones that, that only looking at the ones that have been processed after 56 days or 16%. So what that sort of shows shows us is that, that intermodal savings, uh, when you include fuel for both modes, you know, versus truckload, these are on the same five-digit origin destination pairs. Sort of is it sort of in that, that traditional ten to fifteen percent range, roughly? You know, the reason why that purple line is higher, I think, those are that's weighted towards the bigger shippers, who would be the ones that would extend out payment terms, uh, you know, past you know past thirty days to something like sixty days, um, and, and they would not be included in that in that white line where the rates are much closer to, to truckload. So, so, so based on that. Um, you know, the savings is, is is roughly roughly similar, but but you know, talked this morning on, on FreightWaves now about you know what, what really moves the needle in terms of modal share gain, and, and I really do think it's service levels. Where if the, the intermodal service levels can be where they need to be, uh, that's um, what'll cause share gain. Like moving containers from Newark to Chicago, if you can do that every third day consistently, you know that's that's solid, but it can't be two days and, you know, sometimes in five days and other, other days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, you know, that's, that's sort of the, 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 the argument that the, uh, the, the class one railroad, you know, CEOs are trying to push that, you know, our service levels are improving. So, you know, come back to us. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and they do seem to be improving. I mean, we'll see if there's a snowstorm or polar vortex in Chicago, that'll, that'll put a wrench in things. Um, but those will be some of the stories we'll, we'll watch. And then uh, we'll watch Joanna for your, articles on railroad safety um, that you're working on and uh, hope everyone has a good day.